Hi, good morning and welcome to our second service. We have two services on Sunday. The first is our Bible prophecy update that we do weekly. And then second service now is our sermon. It's actually a verse by verse study through the Word of God. We're currently going through Hebrews and actually uh, in the final chapter today, chapter 13, and our text will be verses 1 through 7. What I'll do is ask those of you that are here, if you're able, if not, that's all right, where you're seated is fine. But if you want, you can stand, you can follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1, Hebrews chapter 13. The writer of Hebrews, by the Holy Spirit, writes, verse 1, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue, verse 3, to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage, verse 4, should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives, verse 5, free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So, verse 6, we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders, verse 7, who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. You want to just close in prayer? Well, let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your word and for the privilege it is mine to teach. But Lord, we desperately need for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher and our guide as you open up the eyes of our understanding, because unless the Holy Spirit does that, then our time together today in your word is going to be a waste of time. And I don't think there's anyone here that wants that to happen. So we're just going to ask you, as only you can, to get and keep our attention so our minds don't wander. And once you get our attention and keep our attention, then Lord, when you have our undivided attention, please, 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 we desperately need for you to speak into our lives. This portion that we have before us this morning here in your word is so apropos for where we're at today. And we need to hear this and we need to heed this. So Lord, speak. Your servants are listening, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much. So I want to talk with you today about being spiritually healthy. I am keenly aware that I'm kind of playing on a, 
a very common theme in this day in which we are living in terms of health. But I'm talking about our spiritual health. And what I want to talk about is being spiritually healthy in what is arguably very unhealthy times in the spiritual sense with everything that is happening in the world today. As we near the end of this letter, the writer of Hebrews begins what I'll call these staccato-like exhortations. You know what I mean by that? I mean just kind of like rapid fire, staccato, one exhortation after the other. And at first it almost seems like there's no relation. They're almost discombobulated, unrelated. But the reality is there is a, a common thread here in these and even the ones that follow. I chose to only take the first seven verses because there's a lot here in those first seven verses of this last chapter. And the common thread of these exhortations is that they speak to the spiritual vital signs. You know, when you go into a doctor, they will determine how healthy you are. They'll, they'll gauge and measure and take your vital signs to see where you're at. Well, of course, in our day we're living through unprecedented times when it comes to physical health. But dare I say that there is little to no attention given to our spiritual health. And so this passage that's before us today is again, as I prayed, so apropos because it speaks to our spiritual health. And more specifically, what a healthy Christian looks like. And I'll add what a healthy church looks like. These are the indicators of a healthy, spiritually healthy Christian life. And the first one is in verse 1. And I mean, this should be a firm grasp of the obvious. Sadly, it's not a healthy sign spiritually of a Christian in a church is that they keep on loving one another. Here the writer starts where it should all start, concerning brotherly love. And this is the word that is used in the original language of the Greek New Testament. It's the Greek word philia where we get our English word for brotherly love. You know, in English we only have one word for love, but in Greek they have four. So philia is brotherly love. Eros is where we get our English word for erotic, is a physical, sexual love. And agape is unconditional love. And then the fourth one is storge, and it's translated oftentimes as natural affection. That's a parental love that a child has for a parent and a parent has for a child. So if you're Greek and you're speaking Greek, you say, I love my children. I 
I store gay my children, I eros my wife, I philia my brothers and sisters, and God agapes me. And in English we say, well, God loves me, I love my wife, I love cheesecake and <laughs> sunflower seeds and pistachios, and don't forget spicy ahi poke. <laughs> I love spicy ahi poke. But I don't love it the same way I love my wife or my brothers and sisters in Christ. So what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here is a brotherly love, philia, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. This is the love that we have one for another. And I don't know if you caught this or not, but notice that he doesn't say, you need to love one another. No, he says, just keep on loving one another. In other words, they were already loving one another. So it's like, just keep doing what you're doing. And this is where it all starts. And this is why it is. And in fact, everything that we're going to see from this point on springs from this brotherly love, because that's what leads to everything else. But to me, it's the litmus test concerning the spiritual health of a believer in and follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus said, that's how they're going to know that you're my disciples, is by your love one for another. That's how they're going to know. They're not going to know by how big your church is, how big your Bible is, what kind of stuff you have on the back of your car. That's not how they're going to know. In fact, that's why I don't put anything on the back of my car, is I don't want people. <laughs> Never mind, that's another <laughs> topic for another time. But how are they going to know that you're a disciple of Jesus, a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus? It's going to be by your love, one for another. That's where it starts. And that is a sign of a healthy Christian. And that is the sign of a healthy Christian church. I always say, and this is not hyperbole, I hope you don't tire of me saying it. It is true, and it's from my heart. And I hope you know that I mean this when I say this, that if I was not the pastor of this amazing, loving church, I would go to this church. You guys are the real deal. I'll tell you, it blesses a pastor's heart when he hears a visitor say, man, I walked in those front doors. I'm like, oh no. What happened? <laughs> and, they, and they say something to the effect of, and everybody just loved on me. And it wasn't fake either. That's the thing about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You can't fake it. You can try, but people see right through it. You know, the surfacey, fake, you know, kind of courteous, you know, courtesy, welcome. Welcome, greetings, welcome to our loving church. Where do you come from? You know, it's like, oh, well, that's not very genuine. No, you, you can tell. It's just like plastic fruit. I mean, it might look real, but when you try to take a bite out of it, you'll find out soon enough whether it is real. And this is real love in this church. And I Again, I, I can't thank you enough. 
you make the pastorate such a joy and privilege. I am so privileged to be the pastor of this loving church. And the thing is, is that especially now, so few pastors can actually say what I just said and mean it, sadly. This is the one sign of a healthy Christian and a healthy church. So can I just say to you before we move on to the second one, just keep on doing what you're doing. Keep on loving one another. Just sometimes a pat on the back and, and a smile. A smile can go a long ways, you know. I need to smile more because I have a mean looking face, you know. So I, my wife always said, you know, try to smile. I, I try, you know. It's, I was born with this face. I can't help it. But just a smile can go a long ways. You have no idea what's going on in that person's life that walks in the front doors of this God's church. You have no idea what their struggles are, especially now with everything that's happening in the world. This has to be a safe place and a loving place, a sanctuary in every sense of the word, where people can come and just be encouraged and loved on, accepted. Well, Let's move on to the second one. We've got seven of these, so don't look at your watches. In verse 2, the second sign of a spiritually healthy Christian and church is that they show hospitality to others. Now, this is interesting for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that we don't really quite grasp in our day, what it was like culturally in that day. So they did have inns that people would stay in, but they were not safe. So if you had people, travelers from out of town, they would rely on their brothers and sisters in Christ to take them in and let them stay with them and be hospitable towards them and give them a place to stay. Um, but there was a couple of problems with this, and these problems were rife throughout the early church. In fact, some church historians document just how serious of a problem this was. You have the problem of these false teachers that were taking advantage of the hospitality of the brothers and sisters. So they had to use discernment. But they could go to the extreme and be so discerning that they don't show hospitality. And here, unbeknownst to them, it's actually an angel taking on human form. Think Lot, and that's an angel unaware that we're showing hospitality to. So in other words, there had to be discernment. We actually, I hesitate to say it, but we are, um, how do I say it without, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, okay, help me out, Holy Spirit. Uh, we just had recently someone come into this church that had to be removed from this church because of this. And we covet your prayers, by the way. We have to be very discerning, because if anybody walks through the doors, gives, 
as a church, we are so embracing and enveloping and welcoming. And there are wolves that take advantage of that and take advantage of you. And I want you to know something, first of all, about the leadership and the staff and the elders in this church. They are ferociously protective of you. And so am I too. <laughs> I mean, if anybody walks through those front doors that poses a threat to this church, they won't last very long. Maybe 20 seconds. If I'm out there, it'll be about 15 seconds. They're out of here. Because they pose a threat, and they pose harm, and they pose danger to this God's church. And we have to be discerning, because we don't know. Maybe it's an angel. That would be bad. Kick an angel out of the church, <laughs> thinking they were a false apostle or a wolf in sheep's clothing. No, take them in. You don't know. We had a guy a couple years ago, more than two years ago now, homeless guy comes in, whoo, the smell. So we had uh, Mac, you know, and I think uh, Mark and Sharon gave him some clothes. We have a shower upstairs. We got him a shower, got him some food, got him some clothes, and we didn't know. And all of a sudden he starts saying very inappropriate things to the women in the church. And so we <laughs> I won't tell you what I did, because you'll see me very differently. But uh, let me just say that we made very sure <laughs> that he was physically removed from the property immediately, because that's a predator. That's a wolf. That's a threat. And this needs to be a safe place. But again, we covet your prayers because we need discernment. What if that guy was an angel unaware? We want to err on the side of grace, but you also want to err on the side of an abundance of caution. So this is what was happening. One of the signs of a healthy church is that, yes, we are hospitable, but don't throw discernment out with the baby of the bathwater of hospitality in so doing. Number three, verse three, and this is an important one. You'll see why here in a moment. It's remembering those in prison. Now you have to understand that in that day, the prisons were not like they are in our day. They didn't have gyms and, you know, Starbucks or whatever they have. I'm not trying to be dismissive or disrespectful. I mean, it's, you're still incarcerated. But if you were in prison in that day, you were left there to die. They didn't even feed you. They didn't clothe you. Nothing. If you were to survive in prison, it would be because of loved ones that would bring you food and clothing and sustenance. The Apostle Paul, remember when he's asking for his cloak, it was very cold. And he was asking for the scrolls, the Word of God. He was incarcerated, unless they were giving him food and feeding him and helping him and sustaining him, he would have just been left there to rot and die, as many of them did. 
when we get to James again, that's the next book when we're finished with this book of Hebrews in chapter 13. James is very clear in no uncertain terms about pure undefiled religion, spiritually healthy Christians. It's manifest in taking care of the widows, the fatherless, and those in prison. That's, that's Christianity. That's spiritually healthy Christianity. And that's what it looks like. Number four, this is a biggie. Bear with me on this one, please. They keep the marriage pure. Now, it's important to note that the word in the original language, again, that the writer of Hebrews uses for sexual immorality is pornea, where we get our English word for pornography. It's defined as anything that is sexually sinful or immoral, sexual immorality. And so here the writer is exhorting them to keep the marriage bed pure. And he even goes as far as saying that God will judge those who are sexually immoral. And really, truth be made known, one need look no further than to the lives, the marriages, and certainly the churches that have been devastated and destroyed as a result of sexual immorality. This is a biggie. And the enemy knows it, by the way. That's why he targets it strategically. I don't know if you know this or not, but Satan hates your marriage. You know why, right? Because of what the marriage, the Christian marriage represents. It's a microcosm of our relationship with Jesus Christ as our bridegroom. The whole family is a microcosm of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. We're siblings in Christ. Probably shouldn't you say it like that, because <laughs> that explains a lot, right? Sibling rivalry, no wonder. I prefer brothers and sisters. That's uh, softer. But we're, we're siblings in Christ. He's our Heavenly Father. Jesus is our bridegroom. We're the bride of Christ. It's all a microcosm of our relationship with the Lord. And that's why He hates it. That's why He hates the Christian marriage. And that's why He targets the Christian marriage. You know, when Jesus says that God hates divorce, please know that it's not that God hates the divorced. He hates divorce because of what divorce does to the divorced. I think it's uh, a sad commentary in the church today when divorce is treated like the unforgivable sin. Like you have this scarlet letter. No. God is a gracious God. And certainly when it comes to a very sensitive topic like this, the grace of God is sufficient. Please hear me on this because Satan will build an infrastructure of guilt and condemnation, especially in the life of the men and the husband when it comes to this. And that need not be, because God is a gracious God. 
God is a forgiving God. And when sexual sin, not the unforgivable sin, is committed, if it's confessed and forsaken, mercy is found. I think it's Proverbs 28, 13 that says, I could be wrong, that if we confess and forsake our sin, He will show us mercy. First John 1, 9, familiar I'm sure to most, if not all. It's been affectionately referred to as the Christian bar of soap. If we will but confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us, purify us of all unrighteousness. The cleansing blood of Jesus Christ is powerful. So powerful is the blood that it can cleanse any sin, even this sin, dare I say, especially this sin. One last thing on this, because again, I know it's a biggie. The guilt and the condemnation when it comes to this, especially again in the life of men, is such that Satan keeps men right where he wants them because of this. And all it takes is to get to the cross where that sin was paid for. Yeah, but pastor, I mean, I did that and I keep sinning. Do you think God's surprised? Yeah, but I, I even made a vow. I promised God, I'll never do that again. And then I, I did it. And it's kind of like the enemy's right there going, I wouldn't go back. You, you told him you weren't going to do that. And you did it. I wouldn't go back and ask for, in fact, if I were you, I would lay low for a while on this one. You know what he's doing, right? And he's met with a measure of success in doing it. He's distancing you from the Lord which is his sole goal. See, his strategy shifts when you come to Christ. See, before you get saved and come to Christ, he's all about keeping you from coming to Christ and getting saved. And then you come to Christ and you get saved. And he's like, okay, regroup. We've got to shift our strategy now. He came to Christ. He's saved. Now, now let's get him distanced from the Lord. And He distances us from the very one who has forgiveness and cleansing at the ready. And He knows it. He doesn't want us to know it. Because as long as He can keep us from the cross, keep us from confessing, He's got us. You're done. It's game over. You're down for the count. You dare not think about serving the Lord in any capacity. My goodness, even come to the church. The person sitting next to you knew what you did. Don't look at the person sitting next to you when I say that. Come on, you've heard it all before, right? That's what he, see, he's always condemning and accusing. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's the father of lies. It's a lie. You're believing his lie. He's the author of confusion. 
Here you are, you're not walking in victory in this area of your life. And he just keeps beating you down and beating you down and beating you up. No wonder. And the last thing you want to do is read the Word. It's been said that the Bible will keep you from sin and sin will keep you from the Bible. Has it ever dawned on you? I mean, consider this. Think this through. Did it ever dawn on you that that was his intended purpose from the very beginning when he started tempting you? And it usually sounds something like this, well, hey, you know, you can always ask for forgiveness. So it's not a sin to be tempted, James says, again, when we get to James. It's a sin when you give in to that temptation. And then once you sin, oh my, he's right there. Oh, now he's changing his tune. I can't believe you did that again. Oh, I don't know, man. I don't know. And here the Lord is just waiting with open arms. And Satan paints this picture on your Christian life of God waiting with a baseball bat. You're going to get it now. I keep your distance now. Confess it. Let me just qualify what it means to confess your sin. You're confessing sin as sin. In other words, you're calling sin, sin. I know that might seem elementary, but <laughs> that's another thing we do. We kind of take the edge off of it. So we don't really call it sin. So now the sin of adultery is not adultery. That's, whoa, that's, wow, that sounds horrible. So let's call it an affair. Ah, oh, seems such, so much more plausible and amicable. It's always oh, just an affair. Or how about this one? I, my favorite one is, you know, I just got some issues. <laughs> issues. No, it's actually sin. Confess it as such. Because, see, Jesus came to pay for sin, not issues. I'm sorry, but I know that's, uh, for lack of a better way to illustrate it. See, Satan's very clever and subtle, very intelligent too, by the way, and strategic. Um, he gets us to kind of switch the, the labels. So if we don't see it as sin, it's not that serious, not that big of a deal. Then it's taken outside the scope of God's forgiveness. And unless and until we confess sin as sin, then it's hands off. No, get to the cross with that sin, because it was all paid for. All of it was paid for. <laughs> Let's move on. Number five, a spiritually healthy Christian and church learns to be content. Now, one would not necessarily think contentment would rise to the level of being included in this list of the writer's exhortations, but 
when you consider the propensity for financial impropriety under the banner of a love of money, then this makes sense. Stay with me. I think of the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy in his first epistle, chapter 6. The, probably the most misquoted verse in all of the Bible. It's money is not the root of all evil. Money is neutral. It's what we do with the money, whether immoral or moral. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. And I'll tell you, as the Apostle Paul by the Spirit writes to Timothy, you will rue the day that you became greedy and loved money, because you will pierce yourself through with many a sorrow. How many people on their deathbed lived with such regret, chasing the almighty dollar? Just a little bit more never having tasted from the sweet cup of contentment. Apostle Paul said, I've learned to be content, whether I have a lot or I have little. Here's the thing. If a Christian or a Christian church is given over to this, then it's really only a matter of time before devastation will ensue. And I I think the statistics bear this out as well. Be content. Be content with what God's provided you. This thing about greed and loving money and being all about the money, to your own peril you do that. Larry Burkett, the late Larry Burkett, who's with the Lord now, the founder of Christian Financial Concepts, used to have many sayings that uh, have always stuck with me over the years. But one of his uh, sayings was that the way a Christian handles their money is a spiritual barometer. Let me say the same thing in a different way. You can gauge the spiritual maturity of a Christian based on how they spend their money, how they are with money. That's how you can gauge where they're at spiritually. It's a barometer, a thermometer if you prefer. You can take their temperature, those vital signs, and how they handle their money, what they do with their money. I'm not going to get it, by the way, this is <laughs> the only time we ever talk about money here is when we're at a place in God's Word where God's Word's talking about money, okay? For those of you online, especially if you're new, <laughs> please, please, please know. First of all, we don't even receive an offering here. Now, nothing wrong with that. I don't know if you happen to notice, we've got a couple boxes on the back wall. When I uh, first came here and started this church, I just made the decision, again, nothing wrong with receiving an offering, but I just made the decision that God would provide our every need financially. And I just am uncomfortable. And because of the abuses from many a pulpit and many a church, <laughs> where the first 20 minutes is all about, we need, we need your money. And then 
you know, the music's playing and they, anyway, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go this far into it. But I mean, I, anyway, <laughs> you're sitting there and it's, it's kind of like the person's looking at you and, well, I better put something in this thing. And, you know, they pass, and then they pass it around again. Hey, we, you, you didn't put anything in. You know, it's, it's kind of like, no, God loves a cheerful giver. We have never wanted for anything. Whatever we have had need of as a church, God has provided. This building is a miraculous testimony of that. Boy, I tell you, there were times where I'm like, Lord, you got a problem. <laughs> we don't have any more money, and we got a lot more renovating to do. And God's like, don't worry. I'm, I'm testing you. No, God, I thought I already passed this test. Now I got to retake it. I say, hey, retaking tests has to do with the whole faith thing. I'll never forget those Friday morning meetings. Oh my goodness. We sit there, we got the, the folding table, no AC yet, so hot. And, you know, we got the windows open, you know, praying for the trade winds. And here we got all the papers and they're, you know, spread out over the desk. We're looking at these big numbers, huge numbers. I'm like, oh God, what are you going to do, God? <laughs> You've got a, you got a financial issue, issue here. It's a financial problem here that I tell you, He always, always, always provided, and He's never stopped. Learn to be content. We're going to come back to this here in a moment. Verse 6, spiritually healthy Christians are not filled with fear. The strength with which the writer emphasizes this I think can be easily missed at first read, because he kind of couches it in terms of, do not be afraid, because God is going to provide for you. He will never leave you, nor forsake you. You know, I would venture to say that verse 6 of Hebrews 13 is for us today because the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing that, do not be afraid of what man can do to you. Yeah, they might be able to threaten your employment. Yeah, they might be able to require this or restrict that or do this, but God's got it. You have nothing to be afraid of. And, and in fact, he, he says, we can say with confidence. That's pretty strong. Again, the strength with which he emphasizes this. It's not a, it's not kind of an iffy, tentative, you know, do not be afraid, you know, because, you know, what can man do unto me? And no, there's a sanctified confidence here. Apparently, you don't know who my God is. You're messing with the wrong kid. What, you're going to threaten me? I don't fear what you can do to me. I do not fear what man can do unto me. How about when Jesus, I'm not angry. I see, see, maybe I am, I don't know. If I am, I need to repent if it's not a righteous anger. But you know, interesting, Jesus would say, do not fear 
man killing the body, <laughs> which is what they're, <laughs> sorry. <clears throat> Fear the one who can put the soul in hell forever. I think it's been, I'll probably butcher this. Maybe you can search it for the correct way to say it, but it basically goes like this. If you fear man, you won't fear God. And if you fear God, you won't fear man. If you're living your life to please God, and you're not a man pleaser, you've got nothing to worry about. If you fear God, you've got nothing to be afraid of. Fear God, not man. Do not be afraid of what man does. You can say with confidence, a sanctified boldness, a holy boldness, if you prefer. The Lord is my helper, and He will never leave me or forsake me. He will always provide whatever I need. And then some, by the way, don't you just love it when God over answers a prayer? You're like, oh God, this you're, you're too good. It's like God going, I know. God, that's, you're too much. I know. God, I didn't even, I didn't even ask for this. I know. I just like to spoil my kids. Oh, look at how we are. Come on, be honest. Don't you just love to bless your children? And you're fallen and sinful. How much more your heavenly Father? Oh, He takes delight in blessing His children. He, he's like, when our, when our kids were young, our boys, we, we would have to sit them down sometimes and just remind them that contrary to what they think, uh, their mom and I do not wake up in the morning thinking to ourselves, first thing, man, I wonder what I can do to discipline my child today. No, it's the opposite. I wonder, I wonder how I can bless my kids today. Oh, I love them so much. How much more our Heavenly Father. Have you ever thought about it like that, that when you wake up in the morning, God's already figuring out how He can bless your day? Do you anticipate the goodness of God on a daily basis? I wonder what God is going to do today. I, I wonder if he's got a surprise. You know how kids are with surprise. He have a surprise. You do what? Well, I can't tell you because it won't be a surprise. No, but give me a hint. No, it's a surprise. <laughs> and then you're surprised. Wow. How much more, Heavenly Father? You can say that with confidence. Verse 7, lastly a spiritually healthy Christian, a spiritually healthy church, considers their leaders examples. Um, this is interesting. The writer is actually going to expound on this in verse 17, concerning those in leadership, the pastors, the leaders, the elders. I'm going to do a 24-week series on respecting authority and pastors in the church. I'm just kidding, I'm not. <laughs> but here, the emphasis is 
on looking to those leaders, those examples. And the writer of Hebrews is careful to to specify that he's talking about those who spoke and taught them the Word of God. These are the teachers, the pastors, the leaders, the elders. And look to them, but don't just look to them. Consider the fruit of their lives. And not only consider the fruit of their lives, imitate it. It's like the Apostle Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul was a godly example of a man of God. And the younger men needed to look to somebody like that as an example, as a godly example. Here's this man. And, and by the way, have you noticed anything different about guys like that? And it works for the women as well. Have you watched these men and women of faith, these men and women of God? Look at the fruit of their lives. And by the way, they don't have it easy. In fact, in most cases, they actually have it harder. But look how they're holding up and standing strong and remaining steadfast and enduring patiently. We talked about that in Revelation chapter 3 to the church of Philadelphia, no less, the church of brotherly love. They obeyed the command to endure patiently. Those are the examples. Look at how they handled what you're going through now. Look at the fruit of their lives and imitate them. Do what they do. That's your example. Look at the fruit of their lives. Look at, look at how healthy they are how spiritually healthy they are. Oh yeah, they're hit with the same trials, if not worse than the trials that you're hit with. But something about them is such that they're immovable. It doesn't derail them. It doesn't defeat them. It doesn't shake them. I love it when the Apostle Paul says, it's, I think in Acts chapter 20, he says, and I, I just would Oh, you know, sometimes when you're reading the Bible and you just read them, they're just words on the page. Oh, you, you don't get the, I wonder if there was a growl in his voice when he said it, you know, because it's not what you say, it's how you say what you say. I can just picture the Apostle Paul saying with a growl in his voice, nothing moves me. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. This is the Apostle Paul we're talking about. Nothing moves me. Oh, if there was ever a man that should have been moved, it should have been Paul. Have you seen the list? Oh, he, by the Holy Spirit, provides the Corinthian church with the list. I don't make it past the first one on the list. I mean, the beatings, the whippings, three times. I, I get one, not one whipping. 39, you know, 40 minus one. One lash. <laughs> I'm out. I'm in. I can't handle that. Three times. How about shipwrecks? Listen, I, we, we, and we read past it and read over it, and then we just move on. 
shipwrecked. How many times was this guy shipwrecked? How many times was this guy stoned? And I'm not talking about that. I mean, you know, they, they would throw large rocks and stones at the person until they died from the crushing blows and the internal bleeding. They would stone them to death. What a horrible way to die. And they did that to Paul. In fact, they left him for dead. They thought he's dead. Let's go home, eat lunch. What's for lunch? Outside of Lystra. Some believe that he actually did die. And that's when he was caught up to the third heaven and God showed him the glory that awaits. And for 14 years, the Apostle Paul does not utter a word about it. And then finally when he does, he talks about it in the third person and couches it in terms of, I could have gotten really heady and really proud and written a lot of books about being caught up to heaven. <laughs> I would have went on a speaking tour. I'm talking about myself now, not Paul, obviously, you know. You know, I would have the speaking circuit and I was caught up to the third heaven and shown things that you could not even speak. So what does God do? He gives him a thorn in the flesh to humble him and keep him humble. This is Paul we're talking about. Can you imagine what he went through. Look at the fruit of his life. Even at the end of his life, when he writes the last words that he would pen by the Holy Spirit to Timothy, basically saying it's just a matter of time. And he, he knew it. I'm convinced the Lord has a way of revealing that to His people when that time has come. I knew, I believe that Paul knew that it was just a matter of time. And he was right. So there he sits in that cold, dark dungeon, chained to a guard, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And in his last words, he says this to Timothy, I made it. I fought the good fight. He doesn't say, I, I ran the race. You know, he said, I finished the race. And now, <laughs> there's that growl. <laughs> there awaits me the crown of righteousness. And not just me, but all of those who long for His appearing. That's us. That's us. Oh, that's a guy I can follow. That's an example I can imitate. That's the life that is fruitful, a life of faith. This is a guy that is a role model and an example of what it means to live a life completely surrendered to and in service of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once you stand, we'll have the worship team come up. I, this is one of those times where, and the Lord knows my heart, I just try to do my best. But sometimes, and such is the case with this text, <laughs> I mean, there's just so much here that I just ask the Holy Spirit to take it 
to the next step. I did my best, now the Lord has to do the rest. Because see, we're all prone to leave this here. And like James says again, we, we read the Word, and we're like that guy that looks at himself in the mirror, and then he walks away and he forgets what he looks like. And that's what we do, because the Word of God is like the mirror, the perfect law of God is a mirror. And by the way, the mirror of God's Word is just that. It shows us us, <gasps> as we really are. And what happens when you look in the mirror? I, I won't tell you what happens when I look in the mirror. I just, of course, I always pray, Lord, come quickly. It's, I'm truly, I, outwardly I decay day by day, but inwardly I'm renewed day by day. But what do we do when we look in the mirror? We see what needs to be changed. And we do something about it. I mean, there's hair where there shouldn't be. There's hair where there used to be. <laughs> Got to shave this, comb that, brush this, wash that. But when it comes to our spiritual hygiene, <laughs> we don't do that. You look at yourself in the mirror going, whoa, I need to, whoo. I need to do something about what I just saw, because that ain't good. That ain't going to work. That's called being a doer of God's Word not merely a hearer of God's Word. Again, I did my best. The Holy Spirit has to take it from here and do the rest. But we just looked at a handful of these. And one of these, just one of these standalone is enough. And my prayer is, as we close, that all of us, myself included, would give God unfettered access to that deep recess in our hearts, so that He can come in and remove that which has taken up residence in our lives that's causing us to be so unhealthy spiritually. I, I'm sorry to use this, but lastly, and then we'll close. But you know, cancer has to be cut out of the body, otherwise it'll, it'll kill you. So the surgeon has to go in and cut and remove that, that tumor before it spreads, in the physical sense. Well, how much more so in the spiritual sense? The sharpness of God's double-edged surgical sword that surgically cuts between bone and marrow, soul and spirit, and it cuts out those things in our life that are causing us to be sick, in the spiritual sense. Get it out of there, man. Cut, Lord. <laughs> Can I just have some anesthesia though? Because I, <laughs> I don't like the pain. Get it out of there, Lord. That's, that's the source of my sickness. That's why I'm so unhealthy spiritually. I want to be healthy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. <sighs> Lord, will you now, <clears throat> again as only you can, and are always so faithful to take that which we have just seen and read and heard here today, and begin that process, as arduous and tedious as it might be, of really applying it to our lives, 
so it's practical, it's real, because I don't think there's a one of us here that wants to be unnecessarily unhealthy spiritually. So Lord, if there's something that's the source of our spiritual unhealthiness, will you please, please, please remove it. And thank you, Lord, that you do, that you forgive and you cleanse. We want to be healthy. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.